Please turn with me now in the New Testament to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. Luke, chapter 12, beginning in verse 22. Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If in God so close the grass which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed this house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Then Peter said to him, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us or to all people? And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him, and at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant, who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. For every one to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. May God add his blessing to that reading of his word. Let us pray.
Our great and loving Heavenly Father, we're thankful, Lord, that we come to you not as those who stand alone with a book, but rather as those who are your children, those of your sheep that are called this morning to hear from you. And Lord, as you have given this word by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so also, Lord, you impart it to us through the power of your Spirit. And so we ask, Lord, that you would grant us illumination and enable this sermon indeed to be preached in truth and to be received in love. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So we return now to this middle section of Luke chapter 12, and this time to verses uh, 35 to 46, a fairly long section there. And when we were last in this chapter, you know that Jesus was explaining the all-important principle that where your treasure is, where you put your hope and expectation, where you're building things for the future, where you put that, that's where your heart will be also. But he's not done resetting and reorienting us from having our treasure and our mindset in this world. He has many other things to say. And today he reminds us that we are not just on our own in this world, doing as we please, working independently on our own errand. We're actually servants. We are here on someone else's errand. We are, we are servants who have a master. Now, he has gone away for the moment, but he will be back soon. And like every servant in that situation, every servant who has been told to do something in that, then we must be Ready. We must be ready for his return. Again, the illustration among ourselves is not easy. It's not difficult to to find. If you're a parent, at various times you have probably set your children to do some sort of task, and you have gone away to do something else. And when you return, your expectation is that they will be doing the business which you set them to do. And if indeed you are acting in accordance with the word of God and they've been disobedient to that, if they've not been doing the business, then of course there will be something to answer for. Well, this is Jesus' message to us as he speaks for the good Heavenly Father. And the message is very simple. Be ready. That's it. That's the title of the sermon. Be ready. And there are these three points. So that, you may be, so that you may open to him immediately, that's one, so you may open to him immediately, secondly, because you do not know when, and thirdly, because Jesus knows our hearts. So you may open to him immediately, because you do not know when, because Jesus knows our hearts. That's why we should be ready. The first point then, so you may open to him immediately, it says in verse 35, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Now, as it says, when he will return from the wedding, because it assumes. He does not give a further explanation. He just assumes that they know the story and they, they can infer what's going on. Where is our master now? He has gone away, hasn't he? He's gone away, and what is he doing? Well, he is fetching a bride for himself. That is what he is doing. That is the great work of redemption. He is fetching this bride. It's going to take him a little while, but soon enough, it'll be done. 
And when this great work is completed, he will return. Now, in this great story of redemption, which is a story of Christ getting a bride for himself, that's the best way of summarizing it, really. In that great story of redemption, we are both the bride, the one who has been gotten, and also the waiting servants in different respects. Again, no, no single image can possibly do Christ justice. He, no single image can even do his servants justice. There are many, many aspects to this. But at the moment, Jesus is focusing on us as we are and as servants. And in terms of waiting servants, Jesus explains that whole idea further in, in Mark 13, which is a parallel passage to this. Mark 13, 34, it is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch, watch. You see how that goes. Everyone has his job. And of all the jobs that we have, now this is more specific than what we have in Luke. And it helps us, I think, in that sense. Because it's not just that we're servants. It's that we have a specific job. And the example given is to be the doorkeeper. And that's why it's so crucially important then to be ready when he comes. Because the, the test as to whether the doorkeeper is doing his job is whether he is awake, no matter what time of, of day or night somebody might come. And therefore, when the Lord comes, uh, and no doubt the, uh, there are elements of, 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 um, of disparity to this, this illustration as well, but the general idea is that when the, when the, the Lord returns, he'd better find somebody on duty. He'd better find the doorkeeper whose specific job was to wait for him, ready to open to him. That's the illustration. And that they may open immediately because there are dire consequences if they are not ready and do not open to him immediately. And, and here again, we look at another parallel passage, which is Matthew 25 and the story of the ten virgins. What, what happens if those, and here now we are starting to, uh, to switch between the, the, the picture of the servants and the picture of the bride herself. And here are the ten virgins in Matthew 25. This is uh, starting in in verse 1. The kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. And see, we, we understand then that the idea is not that we have to remain physically awake for the entire time that we're Christians. We see this. The element of preparedness transcends that. The element of readiness is not merely that, that one, one single dimension of it. It is being ready for when he comes. And the element here of being ready or not being ready is whether you have oil in that lamp. Then those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding. And the door was shut. Those who were ready went in. 
And then the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. And so this is the great and fundamental issue in all this, is that people should be ready in the sense that we have put our faith in Christ and that we have within ourselves the oil of the Holy Spirit. And apart from that, of course, nothing else matters. We must be ready. And this is a great rebuke, as I'll say perhaps later, great rebuke to those, unfortunately, many people who say, sometime later in the future I will get right with God. Sometime later I will do business with the Almighty, but right now I'm just going to live my life as if he doesn't exist. And, and this is precisely what is going to happen to them. The Lord will return at an hour they do not expect, or they will die at a time they do not expect, and they will be left outside. Now he goes on to say, going back to our text in Luke, after he says all this in, in fewer words in Luke, and this, uh, we have the master returning, and he finds them actually doing what they're supposed to be doing in verse 37. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. Is that really true? Is that typical of lords and masters in this world? Is it really the case? Just later on in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus uses the illustration to say the opposite. He says in Luke 17, Of which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he's come in from the field, Come in at once and sit down to eat. But will he not rather say to him, Prepare something for my supper, and gird yourself and serve me till I've eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink? And that's the true. That is the, that is the idea of what happens out in the world. That is true of the usual situation in the world. The contrast, the amazing thing is that it's not true of Christ. According to Philippians chapter 2, he is the servant towards us. It is the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ to be a servant. In Mark 10.45, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That is precisely what he came to do in the first place. And that is what he will do when he comes to us. On that last day when he returns and takes us to himself, we will not be preparing the meal at that point. He says he is going to prepare a place for us. And that mansion will not be unfurnished. That cupboard will not be bare. That table will not be barren. It will be ready. And when he comes and takes us to be his own forever, there will be the wedding feast set before us. He, in fact, will have prepared it even as he prepares this table, this feast, before us now. This is true for those who are ready. Well, we should be ready so that we may open to him immediately. Apart from that readiness, we are not saved. And secondly, because you do not know when he's coming. It says in verse 39, But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And that comparison is completely straightforward. You know, human reason says this, we're all naturally lazy, and why should I remain in a constant state of watchfulness and readiness for years on end and end? The only thing that really matters here, and you know, people that are always clever enough to figure this out, the only thing that actually matters is that final moment. 
As long as I'm ready at the actual moment that it happens, the actual moment that it returns, then that's all that's necessary. Who cares? And I can eat, drink, and be merry for the rest of my days. Now, what's the problem with that logic? What's the problem with that reasoning? In theory, it sounds great, actually. Because truthfully, that's what Jesus is saying. Pretty much, if he comes and finds you ready, then that's, that's what's important. Well, the one minor flaw in all of that is knowing when. And as Jesus points out, what homeowner is going to be asleep when he knows in advance that the thief is coming that night? No one, of course. Of course. If the homeowner knew when the thief was coming, he would surely be ready. It wouldn't be an issue. Of course he'd be ready. The only problem is that no thief is going to publish his schedule to the homeowner in advance, is he? And so here it is. There are homeowners who remain perpetually vigilant in the way that they keep their house. And there are homeowners who will soon enough be victimized by thieves. And there is, there, there's nothing else between those two options. There are none who are given the schedule by the thief in advance. Either you are ready or you're going to be burglarized. Those are the two options. Now, what will the coming of the Lord be like? He describes it in Matthew 24, 36. But of that day and hour, no, it's no, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also, so by the way, you're not going to get it from, the information is not going to be available. You couldn't even, by chance, happen to meet up with an angel and ask him, please tell me, because the angel himself does not know. That's one of the amazing things in the book of Revelation, isn't it? We have these angels who are prepared for the day and the hour of the destruction of the whole world. The day and the hour of the harvest of souls that will take place at the end. That is what they were created for, it seems to be. And they must be in perpetual readiness. There they are. They're ready to do this, this great and terrible act for which they were created. And they must remain in perpetual readiness. Why? Because they don't know themselves the day or the hour in which they're going to be called upon to act. And so it is with the people of this world. And here's the example that he gives. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Do you see how that is? There's no indication. Even that very, very day, there were still ordinary events going on. People had their calendars full of all things. There were marriages and weddings and so forth. There were funerals. There was work. There was all sorts of ordinary activities on everyone's calendars, on even going up through that very day. In fact, no doubt, their calendars continued on and on for days and months of which they were no longer going to exist. In fact, not a single person in the entire world, not a single city, nothing would be left standing at all. Everything would be destroyed except those few people on the ark. What was it like for those sinners in Noah's day? There was no outward indication of anything coming. That was the thing. It was by faith that this warning was given. There was no outward, except, okay, yes, almost imperceptibly, day by day, it took a long time, didn't it? But the ark was being built. You could barely tell from one day to the next what was being done. And no doubt, it looked, the structure looked outwardly complete for some time as he was pitching it and as he was fitting it out inside and from a distance, who would know whether, whether it was done or not? You don't know. 
In fact, well, it was done this yesterday, it was done a week ago, and what's the difference now? No one knows the exact moment in which it's going to be done, but then when it happens, oh yes, of course, yes, there was this man Noah preaching. He was a preacher of righteousness, the word of God says. And so not only was he building the ark, but he was warning people that the end was coming. But they didn't listen. It was, they, they were just words to these sinners in Noah's day. And then God shuts the door. And suddenly all, re, all chance of repentance is gone. All chance of any further readiness, of any further action whatsoever it is. It is permanently gone. And it does not matter what those sinners in Noah's day might have done or said. It's too late. And that, friends, is what Jesus says his second coming will be like. Just like that, just as suddenly, just as unexpectedly. Yes, actually, you know, okay, there is actually an ark. Ark was just a picture of what? The church, right? The place of God's salvation, the place of the means of grace, the means by which you're going to be saved from the coming destruction. And, and day by day, almost imperceptibly, the church is being built up. Now, we don't have the plans, and we don't know exactly the final number of the elect, and so we don't really know when the church is going to be done. Maybe it's, maybe it's just, maybe there's only one more sinner left to go, for all we know. We don't really know. But day by day, imperceptibly, the church is being built up to some, some point at which the Lord himself knows. And yes, also it's true. There are faithful preachers of righteousness who warn people of the end whether by their will or against their will, even as Jonah. They are declaring the word of God that says the end is coming. And yes, the sinners of this world don't listen to them either. But Jesus says that his coming will be precisely like it. In people's calendars, as the day of destruction comes, the day of their death comes, there will be other things left on those calendars. And nowhere will it say the Lord returns. The Lord returns. Well, the reason then why we must be in continual readiness, the reason why we must be ready and vigilant is because you do not know when he's coming back. You just don't know. Thirdly, because Jesus knows our hearts. He knows we're lazy. We're indolent. Verse 41, Peter said to him, Lord, do you speak this parable to us or to all people? And I say that because often I think the little words in italics supplied by the AV and the New King James are good ones. Not in this case. The word only, it doesn't appear. And it is a little bit misleading from the idea. Do you speak this parable to us or to all? That's, that's the very simple words that we have in the text. What prompted that in Peter? What, why is he saying this? Do you really think it's because he was absolutely convinced that everything that Jesus was saying was applied directly to him, and he was just kind of curious, does it apply to other people as well? Or do you think it's the opposite? And that Peter, in his pride, was utterly convinced that this probably applied to all those people out there who wouldn't know the time of the end. But he himself, you know all the things that he expected. You know, he asked, so are you going to at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You know, all those kind of questions. What about me and these other guys? What kind of jobs are we going to have in the cabinet of your coming administration? And, and so he, he's asking just to double check. You, you don't mean us, do you? You don't mean that this sort of thing that you're saying applies to us because surely we're going to know exactly when you're coming back. Notice that Jesus does not answer that question directly. Of course it applies to you, Peter. No, he doesn't. He'd rather ask a question, as he often does when he's asked a dumb question. He sometimes asks a question 
In reply, he says, the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward, Peter, whom his master will make ruler over his household? Because I know you want to be a ruler and to give them their portion of food in due season. Is that you, Peter? Is that what you want to be like? Does this, then that applies to you. This applies to you, Peter. What does that servant? Notice a shift in vocabulary to steward, which zeroes in on Peter's situation as an apostle. We know that Paul says, think of me as a faithful steward. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to be giving food to my fellow servants. This is what you need to be. Verse 43, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. I've given you a job. So it's not just the unbeliever who is, this is a matter of, of life or death. It is also for the believer who has been given a job. We have a job to do in this kingdom. We all have different callings. In Peter's case and in other ministers' case, they were given a job to feed the flock. And the Lord says, blessed are you that I'll find you doing this when your days come to an end. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. Days not, now, now's not the time, Peter, to be a ruler, to be someone in, in charge of things in this world. Now's not the time for that. But we can be certain That when the Lord returns and finds us doing what we are called to do, whatever that may be, the job that he's given to us to this world, the vocation he's called us to, and if we're doing that faithfully, then he's going to make us rulers in the new heavens and the new earth. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Within this warning, verse 45, But if that servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming, And begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him. And at an hour when he is not aware. And will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. Did Did you grasp that? This is in the context of him answering Peter's question. He is speaking to Peter, one of his own disciples, one of his inner circle. This is the way that he responds to him. He says, if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants whom you're supposed to take care of, he ends up becoming a bad shepherd rather than a good one, and to eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come in a day he's not looking for him. And an hour he's not aware and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. Consider those words in just a little bit. But yeah, Peter, this applies to you. This warning absolutely applies to you. And that's, that's my first application for us all. This applies to you. We are all like Peter and the rest of the disciples who were continually seeking for ways in which to exempt themselves from what was true of people generally. And of course, we wish to exempt ourselves. But I want us to understand that there is no exemption, either in the, on the need to be ready or to be on watch or the need to be reminded of these things. Look, the angels themselves are not exempted from this. 
They must remain perpetually on guard, perpetually on duty. They must watch because they do not know the hour and the day in which they're going to be called upon by their Lord to act. And there is no exemption for any of us. Let me go over those words again. The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him, and at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. Now, first of all, these words came from the lips of the most loving man, God-man, that ever lived. But in addition to loving, of course, he was also perfectly just. And you know, sinners are going to find Christ to be a most implacable judge when he comes. Again, that's one of the scariest images I I can possibly conceive of in all of Scripture and Revelation when all the kings of the world and the great captains and the mighty men, the ones who would have least fear over people generally, the strongest and most mighty in the world are cowering in fear and hiding under the rocks, wanting the mountains to fall on them. Why? Because of the Lamb. The Lamb has come. The day of His wrath. The, the Lamb has come. This one is so gentle to His own people. They find to be such a terrible judge, they cannot bear to to even look at him. These are the words of Jesus Christ. And he says that he's going to personally carry out strict justice. What is he going to do? What is he going to do? He's going to cut him in two. What about that? You know, we talk about those horrible 1960s pictures you know, in liberal churches, foyers of, of, of Christ and all of his softness and all the rest of it. How about that? How about put that in your church? Of Christ cutting someone in two. Because that's equally from the word of God. That's why we don't make pictures. Because they're all wrong. They will inevitably get it wrong. How can we possibly keep all these things in our heads and in our hearts simultaneously in a picture? Of course we can't. That's why we have all these various images and words from the word of God. The point is, this is just how serious he is. And who is he talking about? He's not just talking about the acknowledged unbeliever. He's he's saying this class of person is is given the same portion as the unbeliever. So here's the unbeliever's portion. But this isn't actually, strictly speaking, one who is known to be, acknowledged to be an unbeliever. This is someone who'd like to think that they are a believer. You see? So he's speaking about hypocrites. Those who go by the name and the title of believer, but those who truly, who are not. And therefore they are assigned the equal situation of the unbeliever because that's what they are. And everyone knows what the portion of the unbeliever is. It is eternal hell. And these are the alleged servants of the king. These are false Christians. Now how can we tell? How, how, can, how can we tell? Because they are acting, first of all, in very unloving ways toward their fellow servants. This is something the whole Bible tells us about. If you don't have love for God's people, chances are, are low that you are one of them. Okay? That's why we know that we are believers. We know we're one of Him because we love the brethren. That's why it's so important. And if we don't have love for the brethren, if we don't want to be in fellowship with the brethren, if we, don't, if we prefer the company of unbelievers, what does that say about you? It doesn't mean we shouldn't keep company at all with the unbelievers. Of course, we need to be lights to them. I need to say, though, if it's a burden for you to spend time with God's people, you've got a problem. You've got a problem. And if you're acting unlovingly towards God's people, well, that's an even bigger one. 
Well, so the first way you tell that they're not really believers is that they're acting in these unloving ways to their fellow servants. And the other thing and the most relevant thing to us is that he's not watching. That's the problem. This man is characterized by an utter lack of expectation of the Lord's return. And he does not do that. He hasn't taken it on faith, you see, that it's going to happen. And he doesn't do it because he does not have faith. And those two things go together. Those who do not have faith in Christ in terms of their salvation. What else is their faith other than when the Lord returns, he's going to save me. That requires then an absolute consciousness that the Lord is returning. And an absolute consciousness of our responsibility before him. And those two things typically go together then. Now, we're not saved by our watchfulness because none of our watchfulness will ever be perfect. And praise God. Praise God that, that Christ deals with us in amazing mercy. And when he, he comes to his servants, he says, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. When he himself said, Look, when you've done everything that you're, we're ever asked to do, then all you say is, we're, we're, you know, don't expect a pat on the back. Just expect that you've done what you're supposed to do. But no, he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant, and I'll give you ten cities. Okay? It's not at all in direct correlation to our obedience. That's not what we're saying. What I am saying is that a heart that is not living in any kind of expectation of the return of Christ is probably not the heart of a believing saint. Now... Let me say this. So this applies to you. It applies to Christians. It certainly applies to unbelievers. You don't know when that day or all that. You know, that's, that, that kind of thing, that thought that maybe the Lord was returning is something that he used in, in my own conversion. And I ask you, what, what needs to happen in redemptive history before the end comes? Seemingly to me, not all that much. There isn't all that much that is left to happen And that's precisely why for the last few hundred years, Christians have been pointing out that the end is probably near. We don't know the day or the hour, and we should not try to figure it out. That's true. That would be contrary to Christ's logic and point, by the way. That's what's so perverse about Christians who try to find out the day or the hour. They're like Peter. They're exempting themselves from from the fact that it's not expected. It's contrary to the whole idea. But... There is no doubt that the end is now nearer for us than for any previous point in history. That's just absolutely self-evidently clear. It is certainly nearer for us. So if Christians of previous generations had every reason to think, well, is it now? Is it going to happen in our time? We have more reason for that. If the church was looking like, and the, the, and the prophecy fulfilled and all the rest of these things was looking like things were, were poised for the end 300 years ago in the time of Edwards, how much more so now? And the passing of time does not make the end less imminent, it makes it more imminent. And so if you have not yet done this thing of putting your faith in Christ and you're awaiting some time in the future, I would urge you to reconsider you do not know the day or the hour. So this applies to every one of us, every last one of us. And secondly, and, and equally as obviously, be watchful. It's a pretty obvious application of a prayer, of, of a, a sermon on watchfulness, is that we should be watchful. Now, in some sense, it's not fun. I, I look back at the night watches that I had in the military, whether as someone very junior just standing there with a, a rifle, or whether someone more senior um, in, in terms of um, air defense and, 
the, the, the problem was the same. It was one of the hardest things I ever had to do. The temptation to sleep at some points becomes almost unbearable. And the question is, what is going to keep you awake? What is going to keep you watchful in such situations? Well, I wish I could say it was merely my sense of duty. Of course, that's got to be part of it. I wish I could say it was merely that. Do you know what it was really? My fear of, of getting caught sleeping. That's what kept me awake. Whether it was somebody way senior to me as, as the man with a rifle, or whether it was somebody junior to me as the captain, I wouldn't dare be caught sleeping when I was supposed to be on watch. Well, dear Christian, know that remaining watchful throughout this life is no easy task. And I almost wish that I could take Peter's line and say, this doesn't apply to us, don't worry about it. But I know that it does apply to us. And consider some of the other exhortations in Scripture on this subject. First of all, in terms of prayer. Colossians 4.2, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. And prayer is one of the most important and principal ways we have of being watchful. In fact, the Puritans used to use those two words synonymously. I don't know if you've come across that. Watching is praying. So if you come across some old journal and they say that I was watching last night, it meant they were praying. That's the thing. So certainly in prayer. And then also in the faith itself. 1 Corinthians 16.13, as, as Paul is giving these concluding things, watch Stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. So watch, because your, your faith is in danger. You need to watch and stand fast in the faith. Or in Revelation 3, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you received and heard, okay? So it's about the faith. It is about the word that is preached to you. It is about the Christian faith. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You know what? Your faith, your belief in the truth of Scripture, these things are not to be taken for granted. I know that they often are, but they are not to be taken for granted. It is something to be watchful over. Why? Because there are false teachers, for one thing. Look. That's why Paul tells the Ephesian elders to watch. What is, it, what is on the, his, his list of things? He's got an agenda to speak to the Ephesian elders. And there's a few things he really wants to emphasize because he's not going to see them again. What are the things that he emphasizes? What are the things that keeps Paul awake and wants to convey and make sure, certain that those elders are, are, are dealing with? For I know this, this is Acts 20-29, for I know this. That after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Brothers and sisters, if this is keeping the Apostle Paul up, and we know that he was faithful in discharging his duties towards those people, Shouldn't it be of some concern to us? Do we really think that we're so strong, so orthodox, that our faith is something to be taken for granted? And there's no possibility looming that somehow, even among yourselves, a false teacher might arise. It's not what the Word of God says. If you thought that way, you would be thinking utterly without any warrant or good reason whatsoever. Actually, the Word of God says you have every reason to expect 
that there will be false teachers who will seek to destroy you and scatter the flock with their false teachings. And therefore, you should be watchful, watchful over your own faith. There are false teachers. There's a devil himself ultimately behind all of these things. We have to believe that he is real and he is active. First Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. See that? Because of that, because there are false teachers, because there is the devil, then you need, need to be vigilant. And again, some of us say, ah, devil, shmevel. And you, you, you go to sleep spiritually because you don't think that he can get you. Well, now look, he can't, he can't against your will take your salvation. That is true. We know that he is on a chain. We're thankful that there are limitations. But he speaks lies to people. He does it all the time. And let none of us think that we're above or beyond his reach in that sense. Above the, or beyond the reach of false teachers to speak lies to us or Satan himself. We need to be vigilant. The word of God commands us to be vigilant. First Thessalonians 5, I would say also in terms of our own obedience, in terms of our own, the way that we live. First Thessalonians 5, 6, therefore let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. By the way, uh, deacons, this is why I, I want the, oh, there's only one of you, um, but two, the, the doors open when it gets, the air gets close like this, because people sleep. So as an object lesson, please, let's open a door somewhere because people are sleeping. Okay? Um, Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, that's the thing, is, is that God in his goodness did not appoint us to wrath. He has no reason to wake up those other people who are sleeping, right? Because those who he's passed over in his elective predestination purposes, well, some of them he, he warns and that only adds to their, their judgment. But in the end, there is no effectual call for them. But what about you, Christian? He's appointed you for eternal life. And therefore, he wakes you up. Therefore, he tells you to be on watch. Therefore, he tells you that you should be sober and put on the breastplate. There it is, that language, the whole armor of God, of faith and love, and the helmet of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the wonderful gospel in all of these things. Is the other, the flip side of all of this, the flip side of all these things, is that God in his goodness, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, has appointed you not for wrath, but for glory. And he wants to find you on watch. He is looking forward to finding his faithful servants on watch. Aren't you looking forward to that time? Aren't you in a positive sense? Rather than in fear, aren't you, won't you be glad in all of your sufferings, in all of your trials in this world, in all the struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, to stay watchful? Your Lord comes, and there you are. You're ready for him. Won't that be a wonderful moment? Well, thirdly and finally, the th- final application is the Lord's Supper. 
What else do we have to keep us watchful? I think we need every single thing that we can get. And I think that we have, by the way, the Lord's Supper. What is it that we say that we're doing in this sacrament? You know what we're saying we're doing? We remember the Lord's death till he come. And the emphasis, nine times out of ten, probably 99 times out of 100, is on the remember his death part. And in, in some sense, I, I understand that. But we, we, it's almost to the point where we think that till he come, you could delete those words and you would still have all that you needed to know about the Lord's Supper. Isn't that true? You probably think, we probably all think that way. As long as we remember his death. No, the doctrine of the Lord's Supper is not complete by those words alone. It must also have the words, till he come. Why did he add those words? What's the purpose? Well, the Lord's Supper was given precisely to remind us and others not only that Christ died for our sins, but that he will also return to judge the quick and the dead. And so every time we have this Lord's Supper, it is yet another reminder. We don't have the physical ark going up, but we have this sign and this seal week by week that we are, yes, we're remembering back toward the Lord's death, but week by week we are coming closer to his return. And this Lord's Supper is as a reminder to servants, he is coming. Don't forget about him. This is his promise. This is a visible reminder that he's coming soon. Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, you're so good to us. Good enough that, Lord, you do not just let us go our way. You're not as some officer who is seeking to catch people unaware just so they can be made to be in trouble. But, Lord, you give us every reason, every reminder, everything in word and also in this Lord's Supper, every rationale that we might be watchful. And Lord, we know that that exhortation applies to every one of us. We pray, Lord, that there would be none that would bless himself in his own heart and say, I can eat, drink, and be merry, and at some point in the future I will put my faith in Christ. We know, Lord, that that is not the way it works, and that for those, for such people, for particularly for such people, the Lord will return in a day and an hour that they're not expecting, and they will be given a place with the unbelievers. How we pray, Lord God, that we would repent of such things. How we pray that unbelievers would put their faith in Christ. And Lord, as for your people, we would desire that when you come, that we would be found to be on watch, that we would be fully ready for you. We don't know when that is, but help us, Lord, to be as the angels perpetually in a state of expectation. We know, Lord, this is impossible on our own. Our flesh is very drowsy, even physically. But we pray, Lord, through the power of your word and your spirit, that you would make us to be vigilant servants who will not be ashamed on the day and an hour of your choosing in which you return. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.